0: Hello and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study Thanks to everyone here as well as those over in Appleton and Stevens Point. Hello, hello, hello. This is our chance where we sit down and just take our time to walk through the Bible. Very, just very deliberately, not trying to be in any particular hurry or whatever, but just a chance to really get into the weeds. You really want to get to understand the Bible. You should join us on Wednesday nights. We're glad that you're here. So we are now in the uh, book of Ezra. We've been in the Old Testament uh, and uh, we've, we started at Genesis, <laughs> worked our way all the way up to how, it's really the story, not just of creation, but really how the Jews wound up in Egypt. Then they're in Egypt for 400 years in slavery. Then Moses comes and says, let my people go. And he gets the people out of there, and then they go into the promised land. They conquer the promised land. God tells them, listen, if you do the right stuff, I will bless you. If you do not, I will kick your butt, which is really interesting because, you know, get on a tangent here, but uh, oftentimes you hear this idea of unconditional love, unconditional love, no conditions. It's a bunch of horse manure, all right? There's no such thing as unconditional love. There's unending love, unmitigated love, all kinds, but God has always had conditions. In fact, without conditions, love cannot exist. You say, well, that's not what they teach us in the world. Yeah, look at the world around you how they doing? <laughs> they, they don't get this. There always have to be conditions. There's conditions in any relationship to succeed. There has to be conditions. That's why when Adam and Eve got in the garden, first thing God sets up is condition. Very simple one. You can do anything. Just don't eat that one tree. Why? Because without conditions, love cannot exist. Of course, it takes them all of 10 minutes probably before they screw that whole deal up. uh, But anyway, throughout the Bible, there are conditions, and God says, okay, so here are the conditions. You do the right thing, I will bless you. If you don't, I will hammer you. Well, of course, what do they choose? To do everything they can, possibly wrong. And then eventually God sends kings, only because they whined about it. We want a king. Somebody give us a king. We need a king. God says, I'll be your king. No, we need a real king because we want to be like everybody else. Well, then we get to kings, and we got in the book of kings, first and second kings, so start with Samuel, first and second Kings, and find out where all the kings came from, the King David and King Solomon. While wow, there were a handful of really wonderful men that God blessed and used in a mighty way, for the most part, they were just scoundrels, these people. Some of them immeasurably wicked, like you can imagine. God, in his patience, kept warning them, warning them, warning them, that's part of some of these prophets in here trying to tell them, you better stop, you better stop, you better stop. <clears throat> they didn't want to stop. So God comes, he hammers them, they go off into Babylonian, Babylonian captivity. They lose everything. All that promise that they had is now gone. And they are under the rule of the Babylonians. And we start reading about Daniel during the Babylonians. And now we get to... Now, this is a very major part of the, New Testament, of the Old Testament story. When the Jews come back out of captivity, back to Jerusalem, and they reap... The whole thing is devastated. I mean, there is no temple anymore. There's nothing. The whole thing is just in ruins. Like an atomic bomb went off in this place. Boom! It just, they just raised it to the ground. Well, God has a plan yet. His name is Jesus, and there's nothing there. So God brings them back, rebuilds the whole thing. About four or 500 years later, Jesus comes. Because they, they rebuilt this thing. The Jews came back, reestablished it. So that's really the story here. Now, what happens here, and we'll dance around a bit as we get into this, uh, there's multiple events going on, biblically speaking, according to what we read here. As we're reading Ezra, Daniel is still there. Daniel's still doing his thing. He's one of the major leaders in Babylon, and he's dealing with the kings and stuff. Well, while Daniel's still there, they sent back these guys, and they start to rebuild very slowly at first. Uh, Then there's other prophets, and we're going to point out who they are. There's a good three or four books in the Bible, in the Old Testament here, that all happened virtually simultaneously. And we're going to dance around and and put it all into context, because this is a big deal that is happening here. All right, so Cyrus is the uh, you know, ruler of uh, Persia now at this point. All right, so we got the Persians. Uh, originally, it was the, the uh, what were they? Babylonians. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm talking about. So the Babylonians come in, and they're, they're the first ones, and then Cyrus comes in And off to the races we go. And as we read last time, that uh, Isaiah prophesied Cyrus by name. I'm going to bring a king named Cyrus, and he's going to send the people back. And it's exactly what happens. It's a stunning prophecy. So that's what we read. So they come back, and uh, not all of them. Remember, Daniel and a bunch of them are still in Babylon. They didn't all come back right away. There is a remnant that came back that started focusing on rebuilding Israel, Jerusalem, the whole deal, the temple. So, we pick up at chapter three, verse three. Now, despite their fear of the peoples around them, uh, and there were people around them that didn't want the Jews to reestablish it, even though Cyrus had do it, they were not happy. And uh, despite their fear, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifice. So the first thing they do is they start worshiping God, even though everything's not built, it's a mess. But the first thing they built is the altar. And they start worshiping uh, God. Then in accordance with what was written, they celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices. They're basically following all of these rules of the Old Testament. The law of Moses, very strict about what to sacrifice, when to do it, when to worship, when to pray, when not to pray. I mean, the law of Moses was really, holy cow, very, very detailed Uh, So verse 6, on the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. He had okayed all this already. But they're still paying people to do the work. The Bible says the laborer is worthy of his hire. Some people actually in churches get irritated if anybody in the church is getting paid to do anything. Well, it's great people can volunteer their time. We're all for that. But at some point, people need to make a living. And if you need to get anything done in a faster timetable, you pay people. That's what they did, all right? And they'd take the offerings. We talked about the offerings that they'd taken and stuff. So uh, they got the people working. Uh, they're bringing in these big logs and stuff to help rebuild everything. In the second month of the second year, after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Sheol, whatever, and all these guys, and the rest of their brothers began the work, appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. So they're getting further along in the work. The Levites were of the priestly tribe. So anybody at least 20 years of older of that tribe were going, was going to oversee the work and make sure that it was done to the very specific specs. All right? Jeshua and his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of whatever. and All these things. They're all joined together working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. Now, this is a big deal. They're finally, they've relayed just the foundations. Remember, there was nothing left. They devastated it. And uh, it was just, it ripped their hearts out. They finally laid the foundation. When they did, the priests in in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites with cymbals took—don't you like the sounds? Took their praise places to praise the Lord. Everybody got in place. All right, the band strikes up, praising God as prescribed by David, king of Israel, with praise and thanksgivings. They sang to the Lord: He is good; His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests remember, this has only been 70 years of captivity. So, anybody 75, 80, 85, 90 years of old, certainly those guys remembered what it was like. And it says here uh, those who saw this and had seen the former temple, they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. So it was a big deal. You know, all the younger people were celebrating, were going somewhere with this and the older ones seeing it and just remembering what was. It broke their hearts and just crying, you know, from loss and, you know, obviously happy that they're starting to rebuild things. Now. Of course, opposition happens. This whenever you start doing something for God, guess who comes along? (laughs) Okay, and he's going to give you a hard time, and people will. And the devil always uses people. Okay, and uh, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of his family and said, "Let us help you. We just want to help. (laughs) Like you, we seek." Your God, and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esron, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. They're lying. They just want to come and mess things up. While these guys knew it, Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the family said, You have no part with us in the building of the temple of our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah. And make them afraid to go on building. They started bringing all kinds of pressure. They hired counselors to go against them, frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then uh, the very next verse says, at the beginning of the reign of Xerxes... Okay. Now, let's, let me give you a picture of, of the kings. I'm going to try and give this to you. A little history lesson. There will not be a test. That's the good news. All right? You've got Cyrus. Uh, and then Cyrus has a son named Cambyses. Well, Cambyses goes out, he captures Egypt. On his way back, he had been dis, uh, uh, deposed by his brother, Bardia, whatever his name was, who cares. But uh, now historians argue whether that it was really Bardia for somebody inter- interpreting Bardia. you know, again, who cares? I don't care. All we know is that uh, someone took over, took power. Now, Um, Cambyses at this point winds up dead and there's some historical debate as to whether he was killed you know in route to put down some rebellion or fight some bad guys or there's a lot of evidence that he just kills himself He, I don't know if he's depressed because he thinks oh my I've lost the kingdom my brother's taken over you know people are crazy I don't know so this guy you know all we know is that He's no more. So here's the army. They're coming back from Egypt. And the word comes: Oh no! Your snotty little brother took over, or whoever it was. And oh no! So he ah! so he offs himself. All right. Well now they're without a commander. You yeah, the whole army are out there, right? So one of the officers, a guy by the name of Darius, takes over. Somebody's got to take over, right? So Darius. He's a tough guy around. All right, we're not going to lose this thing. It's a big army, you know. So he goes and leads the army back, crushes the coup, uh, uh, and then eventually Darius takes over as the ruler. So now Darius is the king of Persia. Now Darius is the guy that threw Daniel into the lion's den. Okay, so here's the timeline. See, all this stuff is going on. That's what Daniel's still going. We got multiple stories going on here all at the same time. Uh, also, the whole deal with Esther uh, has been going on, and we're going to get to that in a minute. It's just like juggling cats here just for a bit. So, uh, so anyway, Darius uh, decides he's going to conquer Greece, but he fails. He, he can't pull it off. Uh, so Darius has a son, Xerxes, who eventually takes over and then he tries to conquer Greece. Anybody see the movie 300? You know, you know, it's based on Xerxes, that's the Xerxes. The Persian guy that they had was all weird looking and stuff I don't know that he was a weird, demonic looking kind of cat, you know. They make him look like he's came right out of hell, okay. Now we know that Dari- or Xerxes actually was all part, God used all these kings that didn't even know him. God uses all of them to keep advancing the rebuilding of the, the city. So anyway, uh, so Xerxes comes. He's going to try and conquer Greece. He runs into 300 really stubborn Spartan Greeks. And that's Leonidas. King Leonidas goes in there and he fights. And it's actually a historical event. I don't think it was anywhere near as cool as the movie. <laughs> <laughs> But the reality is these 300 Spartans all die. But they hold up the entire army. Now, two reasons for that. One is that there was a little place where they had to pass, so everything got really constrained. So, you know, they weren't in the open. You're open and it's you against hundreds of thousands of people. You're toast, but if they all gotta face you face to face, you can slow them down. So number one, they were kind of in the constricted era. It's Actually, a historical fact, Uh, That's number one. Number two, these guys were serious butt kickers. (laughs) These Spartans were very intense warriors. And they fought, and they fought, and they fought, and they fought. They eventually became overwhelmed. But what they did is they slowed down the advancing Persians long enough for the Greeks to gather their armies that come, and then they repel Darius. Those guys never get a hold of Greece. Uh, uh, So anyway, so after Darius, then we have Xerxes. Xerxes. I'm sorry, yeah, Xerxes, and that's what happened to him. Then Xerxes gets back home, and he gets murdered by a guy named Artabanus. He was like the commander of the royal bodyguard. Everybody's killing everybody. You know how you go to these movies, and you hear everybody's plotting and killing and stuff? You know, they, oh, that's not real life? That was real life. <laughs> these people were nuts, and everybody was lusting for power, and if you had a chance. Uh, apparently, you know, unlike a lot of... Uh, lines of kings, if you're not a blood relative, uh, you know, you can't be king. or something. Somebody's got to be some kind of a blood connection to the throne. Apparently, with the Medes here and the Persians, they didn't have that problem. Just whoever could kill off the last guy (laughs) is the new guy in charge. All right? And I'm sure there's all kinds of politics going on about, you know, not even begin to understand all this stuff. Just giving you a 30-second version or however long I've been rambling here. So anyway, Xerxes gets whacked. But then Artaxerxes, who is, there's, I'm going to a point here, believe it or not. Artaxerxes, then he's the third son of Xerxes, and he goes and he whacks the guy that whacked Dad. A lot of whacking going on, all right? It's like the mafia. And, and then so Artaxerxes took over, and, and if you look, because this whole time of... Uh, Darius and Xerxes and Artaxerxes, like the golden age of, of, of Persia. From then on, all the kings and stuff uh, used their names because of, you know, it was such an admired time. Because after that, there's Xerxes the second, Darius the second, Ataxerxes the second, Ataxerxes the third, Ataxerxes the fourth, Darius the third, and Ataxerxes the fifth. And I didn't care after that, so I quit. All right, so now, we just talked about, we read in verse... Five there, that uh, they frustrated everything from the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. All right? And um, we're going to read in chapter five uh, Anyway, they get <laughs> so confusing. So anyway, that's what happens. And then these guys that are trying to stop them go to uh, Darius the one who threw Daniel on the lines and all this stuff, and they're trying to fight the Jews from rebuilding. And they're trying to stop, and they're doing everything that they can, and they're making their life miserable. All that to say this, when you read the next line in verse 6, at the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, well, Xerxes is down a bit. So literally here, this letter, this portion of Ezra, from here to like verse 22 is out of order. Now, uh, there's theories as to why they threw that in. In other words, the, uh, the writing of Ezra here says that everybody was giving him a hard time. And then they insert this letter that some of the enemies had sent to the king trying to hinder them. The reality is this letter actually belongs way down the line. They think they just put it in as an example of the kind of hard times they were giving him. The reason I want to point it out is because these are the kind of things that... Pinheaded people come along, you know, very intellectual people. The Bible's full of inconsistencies and contradictions. Well, stuff like this, if that's what you think is a problem, I guess so. But it doesn't matter. It's all, all these little things that people bring up. They don't mean a hill of beans. It doesn't mean anything. And there's different ex- explanations for it. But even whatever explanation you like or not, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't change anything doesn't change the story doesn't change that God's alive all these kind of things so whenever you run into someone who undoubtedly knows more about the bible than you and there's a whole bunch of them and then some of them are atheists and they know better than you and they'll throw stuff like at you the only answer is say yeah i can see that but it probably really is insignificant doesn't really matter do you see what i'm saying so that's all of this so this whole next section if you want to read it go ahead and read it it's just talking about these guys write this letter to Xerxes and in the days of Adaxerxes. So we're talking some generations down, or however many times they're killing people here. Uh, That's where this letter comes from. Okay? So, anyway, the point of it is in verse 24. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius, king of Persia. You see how it's out of order? They were talking about Darius. Everything stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, and then they're about to send a letter to King Darius in chapter five, but they stick in this example from Adaxerxes, who's a bunch of bodies later. Does it mean anything? No, it doesn't mean anything. All the Bible scholars that I could read says, they probably just inserted it as an example of the kind of letters. In fact, the letter actually as that is inserted is in their language and not in Hebrew. So it's like they literally took the copy of the letter and stuck it in this and whatever. Like any of you cared about any of this, I'm just trying to educate you. All right. So now, having worked our way through that cloud, chapter 5. Now, Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah... And Jerusalem, in the name of God of Israel, who was over them. So now we have two other guys that are inserted here. And we're going to divert a bit to take a look at that. So if you have your Bibles in your hand, you got to flip way. Because the the Old Testament is not laid out chronologically. I don't know why it's not, but it's not. So Ezra's way over here. This insert is way over here. So page 918 (laughs) (laughs) so anyway okay so now we're gonna go to Haggai because now there's two books in the Old Testament Haggai and whatever his name was Zechariah these two books happened back there in Ezra right there we're talking about so let's just get a real quick picture Uh, the book of Haggai Haggai, Haggai, uh, is a very very short book it's one of the shortest books in the Bible Uh, they broke it into two chapters. It's really short. Uh, But uh, let's take a look at it a little bit. This is Haggai, this prophet. He says, in the second year of King Darius, the guy who threw Daniel. the lines then, we're still stuck with Darius. Why they jumped to Xerxes in that one spot, nobody knows, anyway. So we're still talking about King Darius. So these guys are all, it's all happening at the same time. Daniel's doing his thing. Jer, uh not Jeremiah, Zechariah is prophesying. The King Cyrus has sent these guys back. There's all kinds of activity happening biblically in the Old Testament around this really important event. Okay, so in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. By the way, it's really stunning how often you will read what year of the king and what month of the king something happened. It's their point of reference. It's very de- the Old Testament is very detailed in terms of what happened when. Again, there will be pinheads who will come along and show that something was a little bit out of order and it means a contradiction. That doesn't mean anything. It. It's just whatever. Who knows what was happening? The fact that the Bible, by the way, is not written by one person. It's 66 different books. And how over thousands of years of human history, you can get a collection of books that they all absolutely agree on the same points is quite stunning. It all fits together like this. The fact that you have some little historical hiccups is really not a big deal at all. Okay, so uh, so he tells the date, and the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel. We just read about Zerubbabel in Ezra, all right? So he's prophesying to Ezra and to these other guys, First 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to build the house of uh, the Lord's house to be built. So he's already addressing the fact that God is wanting to send them, Cyrus said he could come back, and some of their own people are saying, no, it's not, it's not time yet. So not only will you sometimes have enemies who will try and hinder you, sometimes your best friends, who actually mean the best for you, can actually wind up hindering you. do I not mean you gotta hate them and stuff like that, but it's just amazing some of the stuff that will come along to try and hinder you. So Zerubbabel, uh, these guys, you know, this door is open wide. Cyrus, the prophecy has been filled. This guy Cyrus says we can go back. And then people say, like, no, no, no. It's not time to go back. But then Haggai's prophesying. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you, yourselves, to be living in your paneled house while this house remains in a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give, give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvest little. You eat but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn money, only to have them be put in purses with holes in it. Anybody feel like that? This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring down the timber and build the house of the Lord. Basically, what he's saying here is if you keep reading, he's guilting them out. You have a nice house. Where's my house? You got nice places, panel homes, all this stuff. I don't have a place. And then you're wondering, why does my life suck? Because your life sucks because you're ignoring the work of God is what he's saying. That's what this whole thing says in these two little chapters. You can read it on on your own time. So that's Haggai encouraging Zerubbabel and those guys to go rebuild and the prophets basically shaming these people who don't want to do it or criticizing others to do it. All right. So then we get to Zechariah. Now Zechariah is a contemporary too. We read in Zechariah chapter 1, Verse 1, uh, these guys back there <laughs> jumping all over the place. I had no idea I was going to do all this. Uh, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. There's Darius. This all, see, it's all happening at the same time. This, still in the second year, the word of the Lord, of the prophet, came to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. <laughs> Weird names. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. That's what these prophets were telling them. You guys need to stop it. They were so evil. And God sent prophets and reasoned with them, but they ignored everything they said. He said, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? Well, the bulk of them had all been killed. I mean, this massive army comes through and just wipes them out, destroys their homeland, levels the city that they love, destroys and virtually eliminates the temple that was the pride of their soul, and there's nothing left. And he says, so these forefathers wouldn't listen to me. Where are they at now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees which I command my servants the prophet overtake your fathers? In other words, didn't I say what was going to happen happen? So he's basically saying, I told you. It's written. You can read what was there. This was the warning. Here's the history. They were very good, as I said, with the history. They knew exactly where they were. They knew exactly where they had come from. They knew exactly what the circumstances were. It was all very, very clear to them. So, then they repented and said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. Then on the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edu. During the night, I had a vision. Now, if you want to continue to read Zechariah, by all means, we're not going to get into it. Uh, but now he starts telling these visions. Uh, Haggai was very straightforward. He basically is guilting them <laughs> and explaining why they're not getting blessed because they're not listening to God. You don't need a lot of interpretation for that. You know? That's the kind of prophet I like. Just tell me what's going on. All right? Well, is one of these guys. He has visions. And then you got to try and interpret the visions. You can read them. I don't want to. It gives me a headache. All right? So... I have read it, but I I don't want to go through this with you. So then he starts prophesying. and Chapter 8 of Zechariah, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I'm very jealous for Zion. I'm burning with jealousy for her. He really desires this. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and will dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a cane in his hand because of his age. The cities will be filled with boys and girls playing there. And he goes on and he starts describing. Now, I have to understand, from where they were at, it looked hopeless. Now, this is the lesson that we get. So sometimes we are facing situations in our lives We've all faced something like it where it just looks hopeless. How can anything good come out of this? It's over. We just want to throw our hands up. Oh, boo. And, and uh, what God is saying, he's describing the picture of what will be, even though they couldn't see it yet. And it helped them. Why, and the reason why this is important, it's important to be able to see where you're going, to have a vision, to have a dream. And Zechariah paints this beautiful picture. The streets will be filled, the temple's gonna be rebuilt, there's gonna be old people walking around with canes, little children gonna be running everywhere, which at this point they can't even imagine. They can't imagine. Sometimes we're like that. You know, my life is so bad, I've made so many wrong decisions, they made really bad decisions. Well, God can't fix my terrible decisions, He fixed theirs. God can fix anything. Don't get hopeless. Don't get to the point where you think you've so screwed up or other people have so screwed you up or it's too late, you're too old, you're too bald, you're too something. That, you can't, that God can't do something in your life. I'm telling you, he can do anything. And, uh, and what the uh, prophet is basically, he starts painting this picture. Now, the interesting thing about Zechariah is this. And this is where it gets confusing and where the Jewish people missed it. Zechariah starts now, he starts prophesying very specific events about the Messiah. But he starts blending two events. They didn't know that. The only way to really have known that is to, I mean, it's great in hindsight, it all makes sense. But at the time, there was no way they could have. Because what happened, the Messiah, they knew the Messiah was going to come. And they had two pictures of the Messiah. A humble person who suffers. And then a great conquering king. Well, they're under the rule of the Romans by the time Jesus comes up. Which version do you think they were cheering for? The butt-kicking version. Man, come on, let's get rid of these Romans. Let's, you know, and they were shouting, Jesus, you know, why don't you be king? And Well, they missed the humble part. Jesus is going to come again, and all of it will be fulfilled. Parts of this, the parts where it says he will come back and he's going to level everything, he's going to take over, kick butt and take names, is yet to come. When? I don't know. But it's coming, I promise you. All of what you see around you will not last. This whole crazy world in which we live at some point is all going to come to a wrap. It could be 10 years from now, it could be 150 years from now, I don't know. But it's going to happen. It could be a thousand years from now, I don't know. It's going to happen. There's no question. Because God's not done yet. The story isn't finished. The prophecies haven't been fulfilled. So we see now as he starts prophesying, here's a real interesting prophecy. Uh, look at chapter 9, verse 9. See these guys? So Jump them around. Where's he going to go next? There we go. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Why are they going to rejoice? because he's going to call them back. They're going to rebuild. There's going to be glory in Jerusalem again. And then he says, Shout, daughter of Zion. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this scripture was fulfilled when Jesus came riding into the city of Jerusalem on a it's exactly, and the New Testament points out that was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Again, they're missing all this stuff because, you know, they're focused on other things. Uh, and then he starts talking, um, verse 14. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow flashing like, arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. And the Lord Almighty will shield them. So he goes on and he's talking this major butt-kicking version of the Messiah which is yet to be fulfilled. We haven't seen this version. It's coming. If you look at the book of Revelations, you'll find that that's what happens in the end. He's going to come back with 10,000 of his saints and he's going to come back to Jerusalem and literally fulfill all these verses that talk about this conquering Messiah. Again, two pictures of the Messiah. Um, uh, check this one out. Chapter twelve, verse ten. Chapter twelve, verse ten. Okay, and I will pour out on those. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they had pierced, who got pierced on the cross. Jesus got. It. They will look on me, the one that they had pierced. At this point, they don't know what he's talking about. But see, in retrospect, now we know what they're talking about. And this is, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great. Now, and he starts describing in more detail the kind of weeping and the howling. According to Zechariah, there is going to be coming a day, as we look at it in context, because for the last 2,000 years, by and large, the Jewish people have rejected the idea of Jesus as Messiah. There's going to be a day when that will turn, and they will cry out and realize Jesus was the Messiah. It's going to happen. You know, they'll tell you there's no way it's going to happen. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. Zechariah prophesied it, and I promise you it's going to happen, and they will cry, and they will weep. This is, this is as everything's kind of wrapping up at the end, and they will realize, oh my gosh, we missed it. They will look upon the one that they had pierced, the one they ignored, and cry out, and there'll be a great Uppouring of grace and supplication and prayer and stuff onto this. Um so he goes on and explains all that. It's really rather fascinating as you read all of this. Uh in chapter 14, and we'll kind of wrap it up with this. Uh, in, in chapter 14, now remember Zechariah is having visions, he's seeing stuff right from the beginning. I had a vision. And these visions were analogies of why they should go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it and stuff. But then he keeps seeing stuff and he sees Jerusalem doing, and then he starts seeing the Messiah coming and the King coming in. He describes him as humble on a donkey and another, he's this guy carrying his big butt kicking sword and all this other kind of stuff. And people will be calling out to him and crying and to receive him, the one they had pierced. And, uh, and then he gets to chapter 14 and a lot of this stuff. Uh, does very much comply with what we read in the New Testament. Jesus talked about uh, in the final days, when he talked about the last days, he says when it really starts to get bad, there's going to be a day, he says, man, don't grab anything, just run. Pray that it doesn't happen to you in the winter, he says. Uh, Woe to those that'll be pregnant, that have to run. You know what I'm saying? Jesus foretold a time when something really, really nasty is coming. Uh, And... Uh, Zechariah sees it as well, and we see it in, uh, in the book of Revelation as well, and here's Zechariah's version, he says, the day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it, which is what going to happen, this is when all the nations of the world at some point is going to gather together uh, for what we call, does anybody know the name of the city or the place? Armageddon. You know, you see movies, Armageddon, it's all these are biblical terms. Whenever A lot of times they talk about the end of time, oh, it's Armageddon's coming, you know, uh, because from the Bible, there's going to be this gigantic gathering of just a clash of the world against the Christ himself. And uh, prophesied here is prophesied uh, in, in, in Revelations. Uh, Daniel has his pictures of these things. So... Um, Then the Lord, oh wait, wait. wait. So I'm going to gather. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured. The houses ransacked. The women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the city people will not be taken from the city. Implied they'll be killed. Uh, So all of this horrible stuff is going to be happening. He's seeing a day here where, oh my gosh, it's all hitting the fan again. And then. The Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. This is where we see in the book of Revelations, Jesus returning with ten thousands of his saints. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. We all know the Mount of Olives, right? Jesus was on the Mount of Olives. Isn't this where he had the, He was weeping before uh, he was... That's where he was rested, right? On the Mount of Olives? Yeah, all that kind of stuff. So it's a big major thing. And here's the prophecy. He's going to come and he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives... And the Mount of Oz will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north, half of the mountain moving south. And, uh, and then he'll talk about it. So, I mean, has that happened yet? Clearly it has not. It's going to happen. It's going to be stunning. Will we still be alive to see this? <laughs> Personally, I hope I'm dead already. <laughs> this stuff creeps me out. You know, But it's all going to happen. The bottom line is we need to be ready for when it happens, we need to be ready. Okay, so this, these are the prophecies of uh, Haggai and Zechariah that's inserted right in the beginning of Ezra uh, while these people are coming back. Daniel and a bunch of others are still there. All this activity is going on as they start to rebuild the nation, because what he's doing is he's trying to put everything back together in a glorious enough state that Jesus is born in a manger in Bethlehem. And, uh, and all the stuff gets fulfilled. It's all absolutely fascinating. So we'll pick that up again in chapter 5. Is that where we left off? Yes, chapter 5 in Ezra next week. And I am done. Bye. <laughs>